And now a few words from Jason Abraham of Hupie and Abraham about how preferred capital has helped him and his clients. Hi, Jason Abraham here from Hupie and Abraham. I've had the pleasure of representing over 70,000 people in our career in automobile accidents, motorcycle accidents and the like. And I have found preferred capital funding to be so beneficial to our clients when they have a loan issue, especially here in Wisconsin with the change in the law that would allow these loans to be discoverable and in individual actions and insurance companies and their lawyers even trying to bring in the loan company as a party to the lawsuit. With the loans by preferred capital funding, we do not have to list them in discovery. There are no issues that they're going to be brought into the cases. Their staff is easy to deal with. And so I would highly recommend preferred capital funding to your clients if they need a loan. Today, the result is happy to welcome attorney Christian Morris of Nettles Morris, headquartered in Las Vegas, Nevada. Christian has a long track record of winning, including boasting cases that have changed the law for the better in Nevada. She also is the only the second female attorney in over 22 years to be named Trial Lawyer of the Year by the Nevada Justice Association, of which she is also a current board member. Christian, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Jason. I appreciate it. As we do with uh, every episode, let's begin at the end. What was the monetary result of the case we'll be discussing today? So the monetary result from the jury verdict was $29.5 million. Um, but... On top of that, the judge added $1.5 million because $1.5 million was her past medical expenses that they were not disputing due to the fact she has a, such a severe injury. So the total verdict was $31 million. Wow. Walk us through the details of the case. So it's unfortunately, every time I'm in trial on a big case, it means that there was a terrible tragedy. And in this case... There was a 27-year-old female out from L.A. to go to a convention here. It's called the Magic Convention. And it's a big clothing convention. She was a model and she was an aspiring actress. She'd been in a few movies like The Butterfly Effect. Had pictures with her with Heidi Klum and Wilder Valderrama. And her name is Chantelle Giacalone. So Chantelle was out here at the convention at Mandalay Bay to model clothes for her friends. And Chantel had a severe food allergy. She was allergic to peanuts. And so while she was out at the convention, she bit into a pretzel that had been put on the top of an ice cream, kind of like as a topping. And in the pretzel, unbeknownst to her, was peanut butter. Mind you, this is back in 2013 where, you know, these filled pretzels really weren't a big deal, or a big thing. They are now. Mm -hmm. But she was well aware of her food allergy, so she immediately called her dad in a panic saying that she had bit into this pretzel. He said, you have your EpiPen on you. Who are you with? She did have her EpiPen on her. She went to the bathroom to take, to give herself her Epi. She sent her friend to get Benadryl and then called her dad back after she gave herself her Epi. And he said, get to the medic area. So she went over to the medic area and basically it's just a room at the convention. And there was staffed two medics by Medic West. That's the name of this big ambulance company. It's actually mm -hmm. a, it's a national company. And they were, you know, there to obviously kind of give out Band-Aids. They weren't paramedics. They're medics. But they were required to have in their bag IV epinephrine. And epinephrine is just adrenaline. And IV means it's in the form that you can directly inject it into the vein. And they were required by 
the Southern Nevada Health District, which is basically what controls what pre-hospital providers need to do. Well, Medic West had decided not to put IV epinephrine in their medic bags, and they decided it years before because the medics just didn't use it a lot. It cost $2.42 per bag. It would go bad, and they'd have to throw it out. So based on the use history, they just chose not to put IV epinephrine in the bag. And IV epinephrine is required if you're having a severe allergic reaction, which is exactly what Chantel had. So the, that was one issue, right? This company deciding not to put the IV epinephrine in the bag. The second issue is, is that Chantel went over to these medics and told them, I'm having an allergic reaction. I bit into a pretzel. It had peanut butter in it. I gave myself my EpiPen. I'm not feeling any relief. Well, the medics kept asking her, what did you do? Did you go out and party? Did you do drugs? What have you had to eat today? And so when her friend came over to the medic area with the Benadryl, they were still asking Chantel these questions. And they started to ask the friend these questions. And then they checked her blood glucose. And the blood glucose they were checking because that's, they thought she was in some sort of altered mental status. Mm -hmm. And so instead of immediately treating her, which is exactly what you need to do in an in a allergic reaction situation and everyone even their own experts agree time is of the essence minutes matter in allergic reaction so all they did was check her blood glucose and put oxygen mask on it with some albuterol and then she lost consciousness she stopped breathing and for about 22 minutes laid there in that medic room until advanced life support paramedics got there. And during all of that time, she's not getting oxygen to her brain. And the reason why she was acting, you know, kind of hyper and nervous is because she was having hypoxia, lack of oxygen to the brain. Mm -hmm. And when the medics, the paramedics got there, they intubated her. She went into cardiac arrest. Um, she was in cardiac arrest all through the convention as they got her out into the ambulance in cardiac arrest again in the ambulance on the way to the hospital and suffered severe anoxic brain injury. So she is a quadriplegic. She can't speak. She communicates only using an eye gaze computer. It means it's like you look at this screen and it picks little sayings like, I brushed my teeth, things like that, I love you. And um, you know, she, she's um, in need of full-time care. So she lives in her parents' dining room in Michigan and her mom, is pretty much her full-time care provider, especially with COVID. They were incredibly careful. And so her mom just sleeps in the room with her in the living room, in the dining room, sorry, and, um, and has learned how to be, you know, a skilled nurse, take care of her, you know, anything she needs, if she aspirates, her mom knows exactly what to do. And her aunts have helped out, her sisters helped out, but it really has been a family effort to keep her as comfortable and happy as possible. Did it go to trial? because the other side just was not offering enough going in, or is it due to the uh, med mal landscape of Nevada? So interestingly enough, this is not a medical malpractice case because no doctor was involved and medics and paramedics are specifically excluded from our med mal statute. So this was a negligence case. So no caps were involved. And I will be very frank with you, there are other parties involved in this case that were not involved in the trial. They, their issues resolved. And I really do think that this case went to trial because the other side underestimated me and they were not 
prepared for it to go to trial because we were in the middle of a pandemic and I was suing a first responder. So I think that they literally went to trial and I'm grateful that it went to trial because it really does send a message. And this case made not only national news, but it made international news. It was on TMZ. It was on people.com. It was in the Daily Mail in the UK. It was reported in New Zealand as 41 million because in New Zealand dollars, it's 41. So I was like, oh, I should go to New Zealand and collect. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you know, it's it, it highlighted what these companies are doing. They're just making these financial choices. And Medic West actually sits on the board that approves the protocols that required IV epinephrine. So they approved this need for IV epinephrine to be in the bag and then just chose not to put it in the bag. But I really do think it was a combination of things because the other people who were involved in this case also were blown away that it went to trial because it's so tragic. And you know, one of my big goals during this three week trial was to not break down and cry because you see, not only did it take Chantel's life, it stole her family's life. Mm -hmm. And it's just undeniable. So it really was just such an epic tragedy. And I do think it was a combination of underestimation and of the circumstances. You know, and we did a three-week trial wearing masks. I brought a lot of my witnesses in remotely. And we were in this massive convention center. And it's hard to connect to a jury like that. And all the jurors had these screens up in front of them and were spaced far apart. And so I really think that's why it went to trial. It's rare such a case where it's going to pull on a lot of heartstrings has the opportunity to go to trial. You already touched a little bit on it, but I mean, suing a first responder during the pandemic where uh, the frontline folks especially have been uh, touted as heroes and rightfully so, what type of difficulty did that present you in this particular case? So I was worried about it and I addressed it in Vodire. And, you know, I talked to the jury about the fact that you are going to have a great amount of sympathy for Chantel because her damages are so overwhelming. But the law requires that you come to a verdict based on the clinical evidence. And her family does not want sympathy. And the time for sympathy has passed. This is a clinical verdict based on the clinical evidence. But also, you know, just like you can't have sympathy for the plaintiff, you cannot have sympathy for the defendant. And the defendant is a first responder and we have needed their help and we are so grateful for everything that they've done. But you cannot base your verdict on sympathy. So if you go back into that jury room and you think, you know, the plaintiff proved her case, but you know, it's a first responder and I don't want them to pay all this money. You cannot base your verdict on that. It has to be a clinical verdict based on the clinical evidence you hear at trial. And asked everyone, is everyone comfortable with that? Will you be able to put these sympathies aside? And, you know, addressing it straight on, it did not seem to be an issue at all during trial. Did you have any focus grouping going in? Oh, yeah. So I focus grouped this case. So it's a 2013 case. It had been set for trial twice before. So I had focus grouped it throughout the, the case. But before trial because I was rusty, right? We haven't had trials. Mm -hmm. I hadn't put my feet in heels in a very long time. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, so I got I to practice, right? I got to like dust myself off. And so I did five focus groups directly before trial. And in those focus groups, I practiced what issues. So questions to the jury, 
like the sympathy issue, things that were going to be, you know, she put food in her mouth and she did not know what was in it. And that's irresponsible for someone who has a severe food allergy. So that was a concern. And then I would do my opening and my opening was two hours long, 163 slides, all these video depots I was playing. And I mean, my legs were shaking for standing that long between Vodire and my opening. And so those focus groups were great for me to do because when I stood up to do my opening, I could have done it with my eyes closed. And it's really important, I think, to just hit hard because if you, in my opinion, you win in Vodire and opening. You pick the right jury, you tell them the right story, you give them everything you promised them, and then you just tie it in the bow at the end. And so those focus groups were really kind of the biggest part of prep on the case. Well, I have a two-part question now. One, how did the defense approach the trial from their side? And two, was there a moment or turning point in the trial where you kind of felt like, okay, we got this? (laughs) Yeah, so... um, Yes, and I've never had this happen before. So during Wadire, when my, uh, the woman stood up, I started to talk to her and I said, that's my four person. I've never been able to know who my four person is. And I knew if I kicked someone else that I would be able to keep her. And so I was going through Wadire and I'm like, gosh, I really like my people. I hope that the defense doesn't, you know, kick the ones I want. So defense counsel, they flew him in from Arizona and I did my questioning, took a whole day. When they stood up to do Vodire, the microphone had feedback, like really annoying feedback. And he kept moving around to try to get away from it. I even went up and offered him my microphone. And he got so flustered. I think he asked a total of three questions and was like, I passed, never mind. I passed the jury. Y'all could be fair, right? And sat down. And then I was kind of in shock. I've never seen that happen before. So then we have our jury. So then I stand up and do this massive opening. And when I say massive, it's because two hours is a very long time to be talking to people. Mm -hmm. But I had put in so many entertaining things into this PowerPoint. I had so many video depots to play. And I was dying to see what their defense was going to be because they have multiple angles that they can defend the case. And I sat down. And that was, I knew it was a beautiful opening. And defense stood up and said, we waive our opening. What? And I was, I've never, I've never seen that before. I was just like, oh, okay, I guess I'll just start putting on my witnesses. And I had 33 witnesses. And so I just started busting through the witnesses and all the witnesses were the Medic West people. And I could tell they weren't fully prepared. So I got phenomenal testimony on my first day. And I went home and I thought, they're going to settle this case. That, my turning point was the first day of trial. Holy cow. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. And so I was like, just don't screw it up. (laughs) (laughs) So when knowing all this, when you got to the end of the three week trial and the jury goes for deliberation, how long were they out? Okay. So they were out a total of like two and a half hours, maybe because they went out. We, we closed evidence and closings at like two and something in the afternoon. Then they selected a four person. And I think an hour later, they, we got the notice. They selected a four person. So they deliberated for about an hour and a few minutes on the first day. And then the next morning I get up and I'm like going through my emails because, you know, I'm all backed up in work and leisurely curling my hair. And then I get a text from the judge. We have a verdict. And it was like nine in the morning. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's too early. Right. It's yep. a big number. It's like a pregnancy. Like it's premature. So. <laughs> I was so nervous driving down to the convention center. 
And defense counsel, both of the lead counsels didn't even show to take the verdict. They sent the associate. Wow. And I was, you know, I was just shaky because I'm like, oh, this is a big deal. I mean, this matters a lot to this family. It is either going to devastate them or give them the relief they desperately need. And so I walked by the jury room, which is actually the courtroom in the convention center because the way it's set up. And I saw the blue folder and it was in front of the woman that I knew was my foreperson. And so I went back to the dad and I said, it's a verdict for us. I knew she was going to give a verdict for us if she was the foreperson. Her questions were correct. She was very careful in listening to everything because in Nevada, jurors can ask questions of witnesses by writing them down, giving them to the bailiff. And if both counsel and the judge agree, the judge asks the witness questions. Hmm. So you can kind of tell which way jurors are leaning by their questioning. Um, and she was in donor relations and she'd work really hard during the breaks, kind of keeping her business afloat while she's here in this jury. And so they did not deliberate long. They said when they went out that they were half and half except for one man. And the one man was a medic himself. And he was already for the plaintiff because you don't get to choose to question what the patient tells you. You treat the patient for what they tell you is going on. And that was his opinion. And so when he heard that they basically just ignored what she said and tried to figure out what was going on with her, that's when he was fully on plaintiff's side. So I was amazed that they were split. Um, you know, you never know how much juror, you know, when they, when they talk to you because they too are nervous and it's a lot going on for them. Um, but they were split apparently right down the middle with the exception of the one and came together and came to that number in a couple hours. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Now, where, where does all of this stand now? Have they appealed the verdict? So they, there was a lot of post-trial motion work. Um, and, of course, the appeal would be inevitable. Uh, but the matter is resolved. Well, congratulations. Thanks. Thank um, you. I, ha I only have one more question. It's a question I ask on every episode of the podcast. Uh, what, if anything, would you say is a, something tangible that they can learn from your experience with this case? So I think what you can learn tangibly is that allowing the other side to underestimate you is a good thing. Extrapolate on that a little bit for me. So, you know, there's a lot of, so obviously I, law is a male dominated world. And I always just kind of tell my husband, my best trial skill is underestimation, right? Don't let them think I'm prepared. Don't let them think I can handle it. You know, I'm a young blonde with a couple young kids and I don't do things like, you know, I'll see you in court. I'll show you, you know, what I do is I'll say, I'm going to try my best, you know, and I joke around with them and, you know, I don't pull the, you know, I'm going to hit you over the head. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I get to try some pretty cool cases. I mean, I can't tell you how many times my husband's a doctor. I'll tell defense counsel. Yeah. You know, I married well. I kind of just do this to keep myself busy. <laughs> And I joke around about it because I, I remember I tried a case. It was a slip and fall on a cotton ball. Gosh, no one was going to try that case, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I won. I couldn't believe it. And defense counsel came up and he's like, you just outworked me on that. And I'm like, yeah, I did. But I never would have let him know. And I think that that is a skill that especially young attorneys can use. Because if, you know, people, these these attorneys kind of evaluate you and who you are and how well they think they're going to do, but they don't know what they're doing if you're not really showing all your cards. So underestimation now, it's a little bit hard for me to get underestimated, but I'm still joking around with defense, right? I'm still telling them, man, I'm all worn out from that last trial. I don't know if I can handle this one. 
because it takes them off their game. And so I think that, like you said, one of the reasons, how did this case go to trial? I do think a big part of it is underestimation and it allowed for an amazing outcome. And so it isn't always about puffing yourself up and being that, you know, big, strong, you can't take me down. It actually can benefit you if, if it works for your personality type, which it does for me, to kind of like let them think what they think and I'll do my work. Uh, it's amazing. I think we're 30 or 40 episodes into doing this podcast and it seems very much like there's a common thread that taking the less adversarial approach when dealing with defense seems to yield uh, much higher results. Yes. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, defense counsel likes to pay me on cases because I'm so pleasant about it. Even when they send me a bad offer, like it's like I roll ridiculous. I always say, thank you very much for your offer. It's just not going to get it done because when you are adversarial against them, they're already miserable humans, right? What a bad job they have. You know, they're defending these corporations that don't care about them. They're defending insurance companies that if anything goes wrong in their life, the insurance company will throw them to the side. So they've already got a bad gig. And so to be nasty to them or aggressive isn't really going to get you anywhere. No, I completely agree. Well, Christian, congratulations to you and your client on a wonderful result. We really appreciate you taking the time and coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate you having me. 